last time we met here in Revelation chapter 6, we, um, it was Memorial Day weekend, we had a number of people on the road, and it's, I, I spent the bulk of our time trying to connect the dots, because in full transparency, Revelation 6 is that point in the book of Revelation, pretty much Revelation 1 through 5, uh, everybody's going to get along. It's in chapter 6, everyone goes their own direction. And so we, we spent a, little, a good amount of time trying to connect the dots and say, everything that has come before is connected to everything that's coming after. And so we, we spent a little bit of time thinking about how we're going to proceed through the rest of the book of Revelation uh, in light of where we've been thus far. I'm not going to re-preach that message. I'm going to hit some highlights here this morning um, as we continue to transition. And we're going to get into the seals themselves that... Um, Christ himself is, has revealed himself to be worthy to open. So Revelation chapter 6 this morning, and let me read the text for us as we get started. Revelation chapter 6 verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. And its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that men should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete those who were to be killed, as they themselves had been. And when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Well, I do want to take a few minutes this morning just to kind of quickly review, hit some high points of kind of how we're to understand, not just Revelation chapter 6, not just the, the seal judgments, but also, you know, we've got the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments, and everything going towards the end of the chapter. How does it all fit together? 
It's essential for us to keep in mind, and this is one of the reasons we've been very deliberate in going through the first five chapters, to keep in mind that what comes next is absolutely connected to everything that has come before it. Everything that we've seen, this is a unified book. And it's going forward, from this point forward, where the greatest disagreement comes when it comes to the book of Revelation. Most will argue that, um, since, at least since the beginning of the 20th century, and this is what, what I was taught growing up. This is the position I held for most of my life, that, that, that what we read beginning in chapter 6, going through the rest of, through chapter 19, is a description of events that will take place at some future date, some future time, period of time. And this is what we call, if you think back to the very first message I preached, we kind of gave a broad overview of Revelation, the futuristic view. This is, the, this is the most common view that's been held since the, the early part of the 20th century. It's not the historic Christian view, but it's the view that if you were born in the 20th century, and that's us, it's, it's the culture we grew up in. It was the, pretty much the only thing that was taught to us. And that's the position that I held for many years. But as we, and, and as uh, we, we talk about going forward, let me lay this disclaimer out going forward. I do believe that as we're reading chapter, Revelation chapter 6 through 19, it does describe end-time events. It does describe events at the end of human history in conjunction with the coming of Jesus Christ. So I want to make sure that in everything that I'm saying, you don't hear me saying that it's not about that. It is. But we also understood this was a book written to seven churches in Asia Minor, seven real churches. And not just, and that, uh, also to those seven churches, there were more than seven churches on that route to Asia Minor. Those seven letters were written to every church in every age. And so while the events of Revelation 6 through 19 absolutely correlate to the return of Jesus Christ at some future date, I believe they also are describing what is happening in our day today and also what has been transpiring in human history since the ascension of Jesus Christ, even in the days of the seven churches. If not, then we run the question, why in the world do we have a letter written to seven churches and then an entirely different second half of the book that really has no application to them whatsoever. Or if it's been preserved for us here in the 21st century, if this is some future thing that has no application for us today, why, why has it been preserved? So I want to uphold the teaching probably that most of us grew up with, that, that chapter 6 through 19, or about some future view, but I would also commend to you that it also has to do with us in our day, as well as the day of the seven churches. In other words, Revelation 6 through 19 is describing for us in symbolic imagery the common place experience of every human since the ascension of Jesus Christ. The common place experience of every human over the last 2,000 years. And the common place of every human that will be until Jesus Christ returns. So let's think a little bit more clearly about what we have going on here, the structure of Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 19. Because some of, most of us have some familiarity with the text. Again, for some of you, this is review. For others of you, it was Memorial Day weekend, and we had a lot on the road. I just, I'm trying to hit the high points here. So you can certainly go back to two weeks ago and hear a fuller explanation of, of what I'm just hitting the high points of this morning. But what we're looking at here in Revelation chapter 6 through 19 are seven cycles that are running cyclically, cyclically. That is, we're looking at a period of time, the same period of time, if you will, in seven different cycles. 
So we're looking at a period of history of time. We're taking one cycle around it. And then there's going to be a second cycle around that very same period of time. It's not a new period of history. Same period of history. We're looking at it a second time. And then there's going to be a third cycle. And it's looking at the exact same thing. Not a new period. Same thing. Fourth cycle. Fifth cycle. Sixth cycle. There's kind of a repetition here. And what is the period of history? It's the period of history from the resurrection or more the ascension of Jesus Christ until his return. It has to do absolutely with end time events, but that entire time from the time of Christ's resurrection, his ascension until his return. And we talked about a number of reasons a couple of weeks ago why this is the case why it, it, this, this is the historic Christian uh, position, why, why this is the case. Part of it has to do with, you know, there's, there's pictures of final judgment here in chapter 6, of absolute final judgment that, God willing, we will get to this morning. But you get to Revelation chapter 20 and 21, there's another picture of final judgment. And that's the one we're more familiar with, the great white throne judgment. So how do we, are there two final judgments? Because we're also going to see a final judgment in the next series of, of, of judgments. And then in the ones after that, are there, how many final judgments are there? Well, there's one. But we're taking various cycles around it, looking at it from different angles. Same time period, same situation, but we're looking at it in seven different cycles. Same great event occurring over and over. Now, let me take this just a step further, because some may hear me saying that, well, it sounds like we're just looking at it's going to get kind of dull saying the same thing over and over and over again. This is not like a rerun. This is not just repetition. Every cycle we take, John, inspired by Christ, is highlighting something different. Sometimes one of the cycles may be a panoramic view. Another cycle, he may be focusing on something that the first time around, we, I, I, I didn't see. I want to focus upon this person. I want to focus upon this individual, this thing, this situation. Every cycle around is, is kind of like moving up a spiral staircase. You're getting a different perspective, and as you're moving higher and higher, you're seeing the same thing. It's not changing, but, wow, I didn't see that before. It's growing. It's intensifying. It's, it's getting clearer and clearer as we go. The image I used a couple weeks ago was, think back when you watched a television show on one of those old portable television sets, right? Those little handhelds, it's like a little... I don't know, three-inch, four-inch screen, black and white. You could watch your favorite show on that. Some of you may remember those things. And then with technology, or maybe you get a, a pay raise, and you're able to go and get, get you a 20-inch television, and it's color. And you watch the exact same show. And, and it's not, not nothing different, but I see things I didn't see before. It's crisper. It's clearer. Take that same show, put it on a 60-inch, high-definition, whatever the latest technology is, and it's almost realistic. It's, it's something different. Or think about when you go to a football game and you yourself have tickets to go see your favorite team. You're sitting at 50-yard line. You're sitting four or five rows back. I mean, you can see it all. But scattered around the, the stadium, you've got cameras all around at different angles, and even high above. And those cameras are focusing on different things. One of the cameras may be focusing upon kind of the panorama of the game. One of the cameras may be focusing upon the head coach. One of the cameras may specifically be tied to maybe there's a, an MVP candidate or a Heisman Trophy candidate, and, and it's following that one. It's all the same game, but each, each camera is focusing upon something very specific. That's what we see here in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. John is presenting to us 
the entire panorama of events from the ascension of Jesus Christ until his return. Everything that has to do, sometimes from a panoramic view, sometimes focusing upon a major event, sometimes focusing on a particular person, sometimes focusing upon some particular trend. So that's what I see the structure is going for, and that connects it to everything that's come before, because the message of Revelation has been from chapter 1. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's about Jesus Christ. It is about who he is. It's about what he has done. It's about his rule, his presence among his churches. It is about the churches repenting in a sense of person-oriented. You've strayed away from Christ. It's returning to him. And now, life to live in this world until he returns in these 2,000 years since and however it will be until he returns. Christ is still king. It's about how to live unto Christ and hope in Christ in the midst of all that we've got going on until he returns and to live a life faithful to him. It's the entire story of the Bible. Hope in Christ, salvation in Christ, joy in Christ. And now the final book of the Bible is putting the cap on how to make sure we who are among these seven churches, we're down here until he returns, how to make sure we finish well clinging to our King, Jesus Christ. Now, as I said to you two weeks ago, where I am in the book of Revelation today is not where I was a few years ago, and I completely anticipate in a few years I probably will be somewhere else. Not totally different, but maybe a a kind of an evolving view. Please hear me this morning. My purpose is not to transform every one of you and your eschatological beliefs. I want everyone to think the way that I do. I'm not even sure in the next couple of years I'm going to be where I am right now. What this is about is about upholding Jesus Christ. And I think Satan loves, I've said this before, and I believe it wholeheartedly. Satan loves for us to study, God's people to study the book of Revelation. Because rarely, Rarely does it ever focus on Jesus. It focuses on all kinds of residual things, external, I'm not saying unimportant things, but rarely in my own study and reading and and, and listening to other people who I admire and respect and who are much smarter than me. So I I don't intend for this to be, if if your favorite preacher, who's not me, um, has a different view, go with them. This is not about that. It is about For our time together, what does the text reveal to us about Jesus Christ and remaining faithful to the context of the passage? So there will always be a temptation, particularly as we get to Revelation chapter 6. And even as I read the text, some of you may have been reading, oh, okay, yeah, I know what this is. This is, I've studied this before. This is this, this is this, this is this. And in just a moment, when we begin preaching Revelation 6, you may or may not hear me say what you think it is. And the temptation will be at that point, well, I'm done with Jake. <laughs> you know, he's, he's deviated from me. And that's okay. We will still be friends, I promise you. Interpretation of the book of Revelation is not that important. And so far as our interpretation, whatever view we hold, is faithful to Jesus Christ. That is important. But I will say, would you grant me grace to say, maybe I am young, maybe I am immature, But hang with me, 
because my intention is not to irritate you at all. This has been my hesitancy in preaching Revelation from the start. And there was no way in the world I was ever going to preach Revelation as long as our dear beloved brother, James Royal, was still alive. I wouldn't have gotten out of chapter one alive. And I love him with all my heart. I miss that man. I know how we can, and you're just like me. We, we hold to our convictions and how dare you. I get it. I do. And I'm not asking you to give those up. I would ask you, would you just grant grace as we come? God, give me eyes to see, ears to hear. I'm not trying to be Jake. I just want to see Christ. I need hope. I'm in distress. I'm in this Genesis 3 world. Show me Christ. Show me who Christ is. Show me what he's doing. Show me how to appropriate him to my life today. That's what I'm trying to achieve for my own heart and for us. Well, then we did dive into Revelation chapter 6, the first four um, seals. Um, the well-known images here in Revelation chapter 6, again, I'm being so repetitious and I'm being so obnoxious with this to make sure you hear this is connected to everything that has come before it. We cannot now just draw a line of demarcation and just go anywhere we want to go with it. The images that we see here in Revelation 6 flow right out, of the, right out of the throne room we've been studying in Revelation 4 and 5. It's just the continuation of it. John sees the Lamb, who is the only one worthy to take the scroll, right? That was Revelation chapter 5. We get to chapter 6. John sees the Lamb, Jesus Christ, take the scroll and begin to unroll it. What is the scroll? It is the purposes of God, the eternal purposes of God, covered front and back. No one is worthy to execute those purposes of God except Christ. So Christ comes, he opens the scroll, which is more than just he's exposing it, he's executing it. He's bringing, he's fulfilling the promises of God in Christ. And so these two scenes, as we shift to chapter 6, have to be kept together. And as we saw, the first four seals that our king opens are what have historically been known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. This is another reason why I'm convinced that what comes in chapter 6 through 19 is a cyclical viewing of the same thing over and over again. Because what we're going to see in, the, in each of these things, the first four that are opened are all grouped together. And it makes sense because they're looking at the same thing over and over again, just from a different perspective. As we look at the four horsemen of the apocalypse, if you will, they all belong together. They're, they overlap. They're not four separate things. I mean, they are individually coming out, but they are one great expression of our king's judgment, of his justice. What we see here in the unfolding of the scroll is Jesus Christ, our king, responding to a world who has rejected him and his claims. And now he's pouring out judgment. Not final judgment, not yet. We will see that in chapter 6. But especially with the first four, it's restrained judgment. It's restrained justice. He's on his throne. He's not inactive. He's very much at work in his world. He's not yet returned for final judgment. He will. But until then, this world is constantly plagued by the justice and judgment of our king. 
And these four horsemen are all sent as instruments of our king's judgment. Now, what are they? The first we see, we saw in verse 1. I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. So the lamb, our king, Jesus, breaks the seal, and out comes one of the, the voices of the four living creatures, Come. He's, he's dictating, if you will, from the throne of God. He's inviting. These are the plans and purposes of God. And now with Christ, the one worthy to execute it, come, come. These are God's plans and purposes, come. And each one come. And what we must understand is that Christ is in complete authority over every, the first horse, the second horse, the third horseman, and the fourth. He's in complete control over them, in complete authority. Those only do what he wants them to do, but they do everything that he wants them to do, and it's shocking. This first horse, I'm being very, hit the highlights here, is a picture of conquest. A picture of conquest. This is a picture of life since the ascension of Jesus Christ until his return in this world for every person. There is a constant, insatiable greed of conquest. It's a, a judgment, if you will, of Christ. As long as we live in this world, mankind will continually suffer the effects of greedy conquerors who want more. I want more. I want more. I want what you have. I will take what you have. I don't care if you have it and have ownership to it. I'm going to take it for myself. Those who have not bowed to the king now will suffer the constant unhappiness of living in a world where they're constantly trying to be taken advantage of. Now, we can talk about this militarily, but for most of us, this happens in our daily lives, in business, in our personal dealings, people trying to get ahead, people trying to build themselves up, build up their property, build up their possessions, at the expense of you. And maybe you and I are guilty of doing this as well. And here the point is, as long as people are living in this world, there's this constant tension of conquest. I'm trying to get more. Now remember, these four horses, they go together. So there's the second horse. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. So the first one is conquest. The second one, I get to take away peace from the earth so that men should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. So think about it logically. When there is the greed of conquest, meaning I want what you've got, and I don't care that you have it, I'm going to take it even if I have to get what? Violent. I will shatter peace. There won't be any peace. I'm going to take what I want. And that's the idea here. The world that will not bow to the king, our world here, from the time of his ascension until he returns, there will be no peace. Is that news to anybody? I mean, have we? Is that not our experience? Now, we can manufacture peace, but Christ is 
constantly sending out this red horseman in judgment upon his creation because they will not bend the knee to him. It's a constant reality. And we know every time we buy something, right? There's that, you think it's going to bring peace. You buy something, the latest fad, the latest technology. I think it's going to make me happy. And then within moments, what? That's old to me now. It didn't satisfy. It didn't bring me what I thought it would. Same thing with our children. Same thing when you get a new job. I thought it was, man, I thought it was, I've been needing a job for so long and I got it. And I thought this was going to solve all of our problems. It didn't. You see, this world is searching for that utopian society, right? Where there's peace and everyone gets along and it's, everyone's equal. This is a great, Christianity has to be very careful here. Because a lot of well-intending Christians are trying to manipulate a utopian society while our king is on his throne day in and day out sending a horse that says there will be no peace. Outside of Christ. You can try to clean yourself up and clean others up and put these institutions together and do all this and do all that. It's fruitless. Because right now, in, the, in heaven, our king is sending out a red horse and says, take peace from the earth. Don't want to sound like a downer, but this is the judgment of God. And I think if we're honest, this is our experience of living in this world. Even as Christians, we're here. We're enduring this. But then there's the third horseman, verse 5. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. Well, again, all these are connected. So you had the first horseman who was bringing conquest, right? I want what you have. The second horseman says, There will be no peace. It's war. And, and those things go together, right? Anytime there's conflict or conquest, you have something I want. If I have to get violent with you, I will. That's the way the world operates. And what often accompanies war? Famine. And that's what we see here. There's a picture here that of this famine. There's a, of a quart of wheat for a denarius or three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now, three quarts of barley, that's the cheap stuff. So, um, a quart of wheat, that's, that's the good stuff, but if, if you know, money's tight, three quarts of barley, same amount. You get a little bit more, but it's, it's the cheap stuff. What's the picture here? A quart of wheat is what a Roman soldier would receive for his daily allotment. So a Roman soldier needs to nourish himself for the day, a quart of wheat was what he got. A quart of wheat for a denarius. A denarius was about a day's wage. A quart of wheat... What you need for a day's nourishment, for a denarius, a day's wage, how far is that denarius going to take you today? And tomorrow you're going to have to get yourself up out of bed and go back to work if you're going to eat. It's a vicious cycle of constantly, constantly needing to, to, to bring in, to accumulate. And why is this world so? You and I know this frustration, man, why? Why can't it be? Why can't I get ahead in life? Why can't I just, I mean, just, just a little bit. Every day is a struggle, is a fight, just to make the ends meet today. There is a judgment of our king upon the earth because it will not bow the knee to him. 
And humanity will strive and strive and strive to fill up its cravings. But no matter how hard you try at the end of the day, you only get enough for today, and then you've got to get up and do it again tomorrow. Now, the famine can be food, but it can also widen out spiritually. Nothing will fill your soul but Christ. And you can keep trying to fill your soul day in and day out with the things of this world. It will never satisfy. And that is right now a judgment from on high from our king. You want to keep me at arm's length? You want to throw your life away just continuing to strive after, what did Ecclesiastes say, the wind? Trying to find your happiness, your hope, your satisfaction in wealth and possessions and power and prestige and sex and this and that. Once you get your grubby hands on it, it won't, still won't be enough. It's a judgment of God, of our king upon the earth. So Christ sends forth this black horse, which leads us to the last one, the pale horse. Verse 7, we open the fourth seal. I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. We spend a lot of time here on this earth accumulating, gathering, trying to make our lives matter. And at the end of the day, every one of us die. And it's not going with us. It can't help us. There's almost a question of what's it all for anyway? And even that is a judgment from our king on high. Life is defined by me. Value in me, hope in me. Life is meaningful in me. If you're trying to find it in anything else, you're going to get to the end of it all. You will die, and you will have wasted it all. Death comes, not just physical death, spiritual death, because the world lives outside of Christ. Now, that's where we left off. And I think it's worth our time to, this morning to take the, this part of it to, to just kind of bring it all together. Because what's the application of this? This is not just, I'm trying to understand the book of Revelation. No. We want to know our king. We want to know what is he doing. How do I understand what's going on in this world around me? And one of the things we see right off the bat with this grouping of the first four horsemen is that our king, no matter how hard life is down here, he's not passive. He's not sitting on his throne, not wondering what to do. As our planet spirals out of control, in fact, go back to verse 1. Why is all this happening on earth? Verse 1, I watched when the Lamb opened the scroll, the one of the seven seals. It's happening because Jesus is in control, because our King is sovereign, because Jesus Christ is sending all of this on humanity. From the greatest national conflict between nations to the microscopic viruses that are killing us. He is sending all of it. Do we have a category in our mind for our Revelation 6 king? That yes, he's ascended, he's resurrected, he's on the throne, and he's coming again. But in the meantime, he is actively executing 
according to the eternal plans and purposes of God, that scroll, his judgment upon a creation that was made for him, but refuses him. Do we have that category for our king? Well, that brings us to the next seal here in the book of Revelation. We've got the first four that are grouped together, and that brings us to the fifth seal. Now, the first four have revealed to us the horrors of this world and why this world is so hard and horrific. And it also portrayed for us the secure sense as Christians that it's not all meaningless. Everything that is happening in the world, everything that's happening around us, everything that's happening to us is in accordance with our king who is sovereign and in control. Man, that, that's got to warm our hearts and say, thank you. At least I'm, uh, I'm beginning to connect some dots and understand there is purpose. And the next seal that gets opened here actually takes it a, a step further to underline all this. And it's almost as though John hears this voice saying, now John, in these first four seals, man, we've taken a, a panoramic view of what's happening all down here ever since the ascension of Jesus until his return. This is life down here on earth. It's a constant judgment of, of our king upon this creation because it will not bend the knee to him. That's here. Now, while this is going on, let me pull the fifth seal. John, look up. We're still here. This is going on. Look up. And the fifth seal, notice what we see. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. Now, do you see? He's looking up here. This one, as opposed to the first four, were down here. The fifth one here, I look up and I see an altar. And under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain. Why? For the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been killed. So, again, this is where in Revelation it's so important. We've got to trace where's it going, where's it going. Same cycle here. We've been through four cycles of looking at the time of uh, the ascension of Christ until his return here on earth. We took one cycle with the first horse, second cycle, third. Now we're taking a fifth cycle, but we're looking at it from this perspective. Looking up, and he sees, while all this, an altar, uh, logically being a, a sacrificial altar, most likely a symbol of what the lamb who was slain, it's a symbol of what he did upon the cross, what he did on earth. So in the heavenly temple, there is a symbol of the cross, of, of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in the temple of God. And John sees underneath that altar the souls of those who had been martyred, those who'd been killed because of their faithfulness to God, to Jesus Christ, to his word. They had been slain and they had died. And these martyrs are crying out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord. Now, I think that brings verses 1 through 8 together. That helps us to understand what was 1 through 8 all about, all those four horses. It's about our sovereign Lord. 
All that's taking place there is because Christ in his sovereignty is bringing this to pass. And now, King, Sovereign Lord, holy and righteous, as this is going on, we look to you. How long is this going to go on? How long before you judge and avenge? These are the people, they're the reason we're dead. How long are you going to continue to, you're pouring out judgment, but it's what? It's not final judgment, it's restrained judgment. How long are you going to continue in this restrained judgment? There's the greed of conquest, there's wars, there's famine, there's, there's all these things, that, and it's bad. But how long will you hold back what they really deserve? How long are you going to let this go on? Now stop and ask, what's the connection? The danger in the revelation is we just kind of jump from scene to scene to scene, and I think this scene means this, and this scene means this, and they're all connected. What's the connection? The martyrs are asking the question that I would suggest to you, the same question that John, as these four horsemen are being unfolded upon the earth, he himself is asking. From the time of the ascension until his return, or how long? How long? I mean, this is bad. And, and this is the world. Remember, John's on, on the island of Patmos. He's been banished. He's living as a Christian in this world. He knows the hardships. He know, how long are you going to continue to let this go on? The martyrs are asking the same question. I would submit to you, every one of us in this room have asked the exact same question. God as a Christian in this world, the suffering that I've gone through personally, my family, the affliction, I'm going to use this word so loosely because we are American Christians, and I use that very loosely as well, but persecution we've gone through, right? Far worse in other places. Lord, how long will you allow all this to go on? You see, the martyrs are asking the same question John's asking and we're asking. This is the sovereignty of our king. Jesus is ministering to you and I as Christians down here in the midst of all of this, saying, I, I, know what you, I know what's in your heart. And listen, the martyrs are asking the same question. And my response to the martyrs is my response to you, John, and to you, Covenant Life Church. How long? Well, watch and learn. Watch and learn. And what we see here in verse 11 there are no words. Verse 11, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on the earth, uh, on those who dwell on the earth? No words here, but verse 11, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer. He's ministering to us here. He gives them the white robe. What's the white robe? Symbolic of righteousness, right? That's all throughout Scripture. Symbolic of, 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 of the covering of Jesus Christ, the, his white robe, his perfection in the place for mine, being covered in his righteousness. And through that, being in God's presence, we're able to, to, to how long, oh Lord, we're able to pray to him in Christ's name, in Christ's righteousness, covering. It's the presence of God, if you will. And here he's saying, man, I know. I know what you're going through. I see it. I know what you're asking. First thing first, here's how I minister to you. Know my presence. Uh, you've got access to me. Use it. I'm not just some father up in the sky that, that on Sundays, I'm here. I'm on my throne. 
You have questions, you have struggles, you have need. Let's go back to Psalm 120. You have distresses. Are you torn up in here? Woe is me. May I remind you, I've given you this white robe. Quit trying to do it in your own strength. Come to me. And he doesn't just stop that. Stop there. What does he say? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. When were they ever told to rest? Ah, Jesus said, come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's not a one-time thing. That is, a, that is the Christian life. Looking to Jesus, clinging to Jesus. In him is our hope. In him is our peace. In him is our rest. In him is our Sabbath. In him is where we find what we can't find anywhere else. And Jesus is ministering to you and I through his words to the martyrs saying, listen, you're here. All this is going on. You're being burdened by it, afflicted. You're suffering with it. Know my presence. And now more than ever, cling to Jesus. Continue to rest a little while longer. Now's not the time to let go of Jesus. Now's not the time to become self-sufficient. Now's not the time to think, well, I've matured to a place where I think I can handle this on my own. I think I can take this. Now's the time more than ever. Keep resting a little while longer. That doesn't mean become passive. That means cling to Jesus. Cling to him. Keep resting in him. And then ultimately, oh, children, I know what you're going through. Trust me. Trust me. I'm eternal. I'm sovereign. And rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Oh, children. I know I've heard everyone in this room, mostly, and I've said it myself. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, today. And maybe he will. There's no reason he can't. We're not looking for anything else to be done except for he has a number in mind and he himself has a calendar date. Now, it's not anything you and I can know, but he knows. He says, I have a number. And until that number is reached, until that date is here, you've got to cling to Jesus and trust me. Hold on to me. No, Lord, no, no more. Did, did we understand you right? That you're not going to bring final judgment until there are more of us who are killed? Until there's more of us who are martyred? No, stop it now. What kind of God are you? Stop it now. Put an end to it now. Before there are more. Before there's any more suffering. Before there's any more pain. Why don't you just now finally deal with the world that rejects you? Answer. Because there's more that need to die. Now I will tell you this. This is one of those passages. What, how do we make sense of this? That our God says, trust me, cling to Jesus, hold on tight. It's going to go 
rest a little longer. We don't know what a little longer means. 2,000 years ago, they thought it was maybe in the next week because there's more that have to die. He's delaying his return because more need to die. We've got to think about that. Do we see that anywhere in Scripture that he can help us with that? Well, we have passages. Why in the world would he delay? We have passages like 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's t- patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So there he talks about the patience of God and that his return is delayed, and it's a merciful thing. This is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It's a merciful thing of God. It doesn't feel that way to me. And then we have passages such as this over in Mark chapter 13. Here in this passage where he's talking about the end of days, the time from his ascension until his return. He says, be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. What's he talking about there? Those are the four horsemen. That is life down here for a Christian in a world that rejects Jesus Christ as king. Persecution, affliction, hardship. Why? So that the gospel will be proclaimed to all nations. So now, he's talking about the delay is for his mercy. He's talking about here, God delays for the gospel to be declared to the nations. And then we have passages like this in Luke chapter 21. And Jesus says this, Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. That sure sounds like Christ's judgment upon the earth. These are the four horsemen. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines. This sounds like the horsemen. And pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sakes. Why? This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle therefore in your minds not to defend yourselves. How long, O Lord? Not now. I've got more who need to die. What? Why? Because on the basis of these texts, and we should spend more time with that, I just can't. One of God's primary instruments and tools for world evangelization is that he is allowing his church to suffer. You know, we live in a world today, we talk about tools for evangelism, books and curriculum and and tracks and videos and this and that. Hey, fine. What I, I can only speak for myself. What I never hear of is God's instrument of the suffering of his people. Do we understand We are here while these four horsemen of the apocalypse are doing their thing. And man, we are the afflicted ones. We are going through hardship. We are struggling. We are persecuted. Go back to Psalm 120. We are distressed. Woe to us. We feel all this. Have we understood 
our part in taking the gospel to our little world, whatever your little world is, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors, you, our little part in that includes the unjust treatment of those around you, of the world around you. And that that unjust treatment is not a, oh, come on, God, what about my rights? That's, that's kind of how we want to talk today. But my rights, you have no rights. Only God has rights. And when we are treated unjustly for Christ's sake, whether it be in our, our jobs, in our marriage, in our family, in our community, maybe even in our church, it's Christ on his throne who has chosen this. This is his instrument. This is his tool. The scroll is in his hand. He's the one opening it. That in our suffering, we can portray to a world around us, Christ is enough. Christ is satisfying. Christ is sufficient. Christ is my hope. He is everything. When the world, look, they may not agree, they're the ones hounding down upon us, but they must see a distinguishing thing about us. Going in, we're in the same world that they are. The four horsemen of the apocalypse are doing their thing. We're here too. But they have to acknowledge there's something distinguishing about us. And that is, but we cling to Christ and even do things like love our enemies and those who persecute us. And therein, if God gives them ears to hear, we are proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. We're showing them their own need of a Savior, that Christ is that one, that He is enough, and repentance and faith. Have we understood that when Christ, said, or when, when Christ says, hold on tightly, there's more that need to die, He's saying to you and I, I'm using your struggling, your suffering, your hardship, your affliction, and even if our King ordains it, your death as my ambassadors to show to the world the sufficiency of Christ. So, how much longer, O oh Lord? Look up, look up. Your king is on his throne. Your king is bringing everything to bear. He's in control of what's happening. And what you're going through, what I'm going through, is an instrument, a tool in his hand to show off the beauty, the majesty, the wonder of Jesus Christ. You see, I told you from the beginning, Revelation is supposed to be the most practical book in the Bible. We know the hardship, we know the struggle. Do we know our king right now? He knows exactly what time it is. And he knows exactly what he plans and proposes for your life and for mine. And he never forgets. He never forgets us. He never forgets what he intends to do. Therefore, he says, trust me. Continue to rest a little longer. Cling to Jesus because I'm using that in the midst of what's going on. Because there's one more cycle around. There's one more seal. Those first four times around, we were looking at the judgment of our king upon a people who reject him. In the seventh one, 
Revelation chapter 6. Look with me at verse 12. We'll be quick. And when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold. And this is what Jesus says happens in the great day of the Lord. This is final judgment. Behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? This is unprecedented. This, we've seen a worldwide flood. We've seen Sodom and Gomorrah. But all of that was still the restrained judgment of God. This is the infinite, unrestrained wrath of Jesus Christ on his enemies who have in the final analysis refused him. There are no limitations to this wrath. There are no limitations. This is completely without mercy. And so terrible is what is happening here that we actually see humanity who've endured the four horsemen, that restrained judgment, now all of a sudden hide us from the wrath of God. They cry out. Think about this. They cry out for the mountains to fall upon them. They cry out for the hills to fall upon them. What are they saying? I would rather be buried alive than to see the face of Jesus Christ without mercy. You know, I look at those images, and you have too, I know, from 9-11, after the plane crashed into the World Trade Center, and the building was on fire. And I think, you don't know what's going through people's minds, but you know this is going to be bad. People are dying in that building. And you see people, and it astonishes us from a distance. They make the decision to jump out of a skyscraper. What do they think is going to, do they think they're going to survive that? No. What's going on there? For them in that moment of peril, this would be better than that. And that's what we see here. May the mountains and the hills fall upon me. I would rather be buried alive than to have to face Jesus Christ with unrestrained mercy. Excuse me, unrestrained judgment without mercy. And it leaves them asking, who can stand? Who can stand in his presence? All the images we see there in verses 12, 13, 14, and 15, it's the uncreation of creation. The decreation. God is the creation that God created for is being decreated. Everything that he put into place is, is kind of unraveling. The sky is kind of being rolled up. The, the ground is kind of becoming like liquid. It's being purged, if you will, for the new heavens and the new earth. 
but for humanity. If they've not repented, it's too late. It's too late to look to Jesus, the one who bore the wrath of God upon the cross, the one who took that very wrath and punishment upon himself so that sinners like you and I could be forgiven, could be redeemed, could be restored to a right relationship with the living God, could cling to Jesus and trust in him even as we live in this Genesis 3 world down here. Everything that these individuals who would not trust Christ trusted in, themselves, creation, something, it's being they are watching it being decreated, taken away. There's now nothing to hold on to. And Psalm chapter 2 tells us, and now the king is angry. Nations and nations did battle against Christ. Go read Psalm chapter 2. And now the king is angry. And there's nothing to hold on to. And you must face this king. What, what God is showing us. Yes, this life here is hard. We have right now our king ordaining the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And there is conquest of greed. And there is famine. And there is war. And there is death. This is a cakewalk compared to that. Cling to Jesus. Hold on to him. This is no time to let go. How long, O oh Lord? He is merciful. Right now, our king is merciful. And he's using our suffering, our affliction, as an instrument for evangelism to show the world around us. Hey, they may patronize us. They may be the cause of our suffering. But something distinguishes us our joy in Christ, our hope in Christ, that he is enough. And God uses that where he pleases. That's in his hands. Our job is to be faithful. Keep looking to Jesus. Keep clinging to him. Keep resting in him. Because the day is coming. Our family, our friends, our neighbors, those in our circle, if they haven't repented, woe to them. If you're here this morning, and you've toyed with religion, you've toyed with, on this day, even religion will roll up like a scroll, and you won't have anything to hold on to. But God, my church attendance, but this, that, or the other. Dear person, I was in that church. I walked among your midst. I tasted of your heart every Sunday. I know it was in your heart to part from me. I never knew you. Lord, if you're here today, this is a mercy of God to give us the book of Revelation to say, now, before it's too late, look to Jesus. Put your hope and trust in him. Repent, turn from all else, and turn to him. I have no idea what happened to John after the book of Revelation. I bet after he got off, if he got off the island of Patmos. He was never the same. I pray the same would be true for us. I know you're hurting. We all have our own. But it's not just, there's no sense in it. Our king is in control. 
He's using our hurts. Let's pray for grace. God, help us to remain faithful to cling to Jesus. May we find in him everything that you may fulfill your purposes in us.